0: Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In today's episode, We have a guest who's at the forefront of building sustainable and inclusive businesses, teams, and communities at the Estee Lauder Companies, where she serves as the Senior Vice President of Global Corporate Citizenship and Sustainability. Nancy Mann is a trusted and sought-after advisor, speaker, and enterprise ambassador who's built inaugural programs and teams at the Estee Lauder Companies, MAC Cosmetics, God's Love We Deliver, The Open Society, and more. So, Nancy, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you with us today.
1: Thank you. So glad to be here.
0: So you've got a fascinating uh, background and and you're doing so many incredible things in the world. One of the things I've got to ask you right up front, because like you, I am a lawyer by background, not practicing law. It looked like you you went to law school and then tell us what led you to go from there to, to, I mean, did you practice for a period of time?
1: I uh, often humorously refer to myself as a recovering lawyer. I don't know how you feel about that. You
0: and me both. It's a 12-step program. It really is. Right,
1: right. Well, I was lucky enough to attend NYU Law School. There's a program called the Rue Program, which is essentially a public interest scholarship to school. And part of the scholarship program is that during the summers, you get internships. And I was fortunate enough to, one summer I worked at the Advocacy Division of Consumers Reports. And uh, I did that in San Francisco called Consumers Union, which I love. Loved and worked for well baby care in California. I also worked with prisoners one summer. And when I graduated from law school, I had thought that I might want to be a law professor. Mm -hmm. And so I clerked on the district court level in California, actually in Northern California, with then Judge Thelton Henderson. And then I clerked on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals with Judge Oakes, who was then the Chief Judge. So at that point, I thought I might become a law professor, and then I realized that actually the professors that I felt were the best professors I had had in law school had actually had a practicing career prior to teaching. And so I took some time off, and I realized that what I really wanted to do was... It's going to sound somewhat naive, but essentially changed the world. And at that point, the federal bench had been pretty heavily populated by folks who had been appointed by Republican presidents. And so they had a more narrow definition of judicial opinions and the scope of the judiciary. And so I decided that really to work on meaningful issues, I wanted to work both what I would say legislative advocacy and also individual advocacy. Because at the end of the day, the other thing I saw in the clerking that I did was I really preferred the trial court because that's where there were real litigants and real people that were impacted by the law. I found the appellate court, although intellectually interesting, there were no clients there. It was essentially one lawyering team versus the other lawyering team. So while I enjoyed helping write opinions and looking at the issues, it was really how does the law show up in people's lives? And how do you create laws that make the world a more equitable place? You know, the other thing is I found that I was originally interested in criminal law and in most of the criminal cases I worked on, I found that no one really won. You know, obviously there was a victim who had experienced some act, whether it was a crime or not a crime, and that the victim was there or the victim's family was there, and that also the accused or the perpetrator also had a life that was often quite sad. And so there wasn't as if someone, you know, threw their arms in the air and there was a victory for the world or victory for different people. So there was a lot of legal arguments in the courtrooms, but I didn't find, frankly, that there was a lot of actual justice. That's sort of what has defined my career. And I've been really lucky to work for amazing organizations and amazing bosses. And I'd have to say, if there's one thing that unites my choices, it would be around working for the enterprise and for the boss and, you know, letting the rest of it work out. I think the other thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about in law school because of the Rutilden program, for which I'm really grateful, is what do I actually want to do all day? And I realized that I didn't really want to spend my whole day in courtrooms and that I would rather spend it with people and with different institutions, I guess, trying to make change. So
0: it's interesting, Nancy, because it looks like so much of your career has really been defined around this idea of contribution. I mean, even going back to when you were in law school and the things you were doing, really making a contribution to others to society, making a difference, where where does that come from in yourself? Is that something that's always been a part of who you are, wanting to make a difference?
1: Yeah. So I was the, all of my grandparents are from Ireland, uh, and my parents were, you know, the kids of immigrants. One of my grandfathers became a New York policeman, as a lot of Irish folks did, Irish men did at that time. My other grandfather was a milkman. And both of my grandmothers raised their kids. And so I think for my parents, they were kind of part of the American dream, but essentially... You know, their their American dream was you get married, you move to the suburbs, you buy the colonial house. Actually, literally, they bought a white house with black shutters. And you have a bunch of kids, and you're happy. What I also learned from is my mother never went to college before I was born. And when I was in kindergarten, she went back to a school, which has now since closed Marymount up in Tarrytown, went to weekend college. And so when I was in kindergarten and beginning to learn, she was in college, and she ended up becoming a social worker, actually. The whole process of her learning and loving learning, I think I really, I really took on, which and I, I'm sort of to this day a, a big geek, I would say. But um, I think also that she and my parents really valued everything that they had, because it was stuff that their parents didn't have. And yet it, I th- saw the power of entering the middle class, and I saw the power of getting an education, and then I sort of wondered, well, what, what do you do with all that? What what makes it meaningful? And I think watching my mom go through various social work internships made me really think about, you know, what did I want to be when I grow up? And, and I wanted it to be something meaningful. I think also, I think I'm a person who does best when I'm super engaged, and I can otherwise be very distractible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I found that whatever I did, I needed to be really engaged and passionate about it, or I wasn't really on a daily basis, happy. So I think that's also, I was lucky enough undergraduate to go to Yale University at a time when it was very, you know, it wasn't the 60s, but, you know, there was an anti-apartheid movement. There was a big dining hall strike when I was there. And There were real life issues that were really impacting the students and the student body. And you had choices about whether, you know, I remember I was the first grandkid to go to an Ivy League school. And when I graduated, I wore a black band on my gown. And my grandmother from Ireland was just sort of appalled. She's like, Why? What are you doing? And um, I basically just said to her, you know, Nana, I'm I'm doing what I believe in, and I'm still gonna graduate, I'm still gonna walk. But I'm going to walk with this band on my arm because I don't feel we should be investing in apartheid South Africa. So I've been lucky enough to be part of institutions where it was possible to care and where you had a choice. But I think also probably I decided on my institutions based upon what I was interested in. But, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day... A lot of life is, what is that that phrase, luck favors the prepared mind? Mm-hmm. I think that's really true. I've had a lot of great bosses, and I've had a lot of luck. And I think I've had some grit and some chutzpah, and I've gotten some good gigs.
0: Awesome. Well, I, and I'd love to hear some of the stories you talked about, you know, some of the, the different people have been influential. You know, one of the things that strikes me, we talk about leadership, and, and so much of leadership starts with conviction. It Sounds like you've got, you've always, you've, you've had this growing sense of conviction, and really, being very intentional in the sense that, you know, this is, these are the things I want to do. One of the first significant roles you had, it looks like um, out of law school, was, was leading God's Love We Deliver, really a, a very important charity in New York City. You want to talk about your experience there and some of the impact that you had there?
1: Well, I was uh, fortunate enough, when I left law school, I clerked and then I worked with prisoners living with HIV for a couple of years. And... Uh, totally by chance, uh, someone attended a talk that I gave. I was doing work around HIV prevention prisons. And um, one of the things that became evident when I was going in the prisons was people were actually using drugs and having sex in prisons, but doing having unsafe sex. So I pitched and I got a research grant from MFAR to do a study of prisoners and former prisoners. And at that point, Catherine Abate was the head of the New York City jails. And she let me into the jails to do this incredible study with current jail inmates. I did that work. And then a uh, someone who worked with George Soros came to one a, a talk I gave, and they invited me to come talk with the then head of Open Society Institute, a man named Ari Nair, and basically he offered me a job there, which was terrific. And I had been at OSI for about five years and was doing work around, you know, now we're having lots of struggles with the coronavirus. I, there was a tuberculosis epidemic and drug-resistant tuberculosis, and so we did a lot of work in prisons there. And through that position, I was asked to join the board of God's Love. And they had been doing a search for the new ED uh, with a big headhunting firm. And I guess they weren't super happy with the candidates they had gotten. And so they said, you know, would you like to throw your hat in the ring? And so I thought about it. And at that point, my partner and I wanted to have children. And I was younger. So I thought, well, it would be good not to be traveling to prisons with tuberculosis in Eastern Europe. And it just seemed like a, you know, a good life move for us. And one of the things about having worked with George Soros and being at the foundation was, I think it was really helpful to me that he was a living donor because it was very clear that giving money away was, was really you know an opportunity, but it wasn't our money. And that we should be very, I always felt very sort of fortunate to have the opportunity to try and make these kind of investments. So I think having a living donor, I think, makes you humble mm. and keeps your priorities straight. But the one thing that I realized is that I hadn't ever really run any place really big. And so I was making all these big funding decisions, like millions and millions of dollars investing in all these groups. And I hadn't actually tried to build one. So the opportunity with God's love really was, he was in this incredible brand and it had been growing and growing and growing, had this beautiful new building. And it was at a point in its life cycle where they kind of needed a builder and a, like a strategy. So for those reasons, then it was an incredibly loving, kind, well-meaning organization. And I had been doing AIDS work. So it just seemed like a really great opportunity. And, um, it was. It was an opportunity. You know, there's 120 staff people. And in terms of management, we had a delivery team, we had social workers and nutritionists, and uh, we had an office team. So it was an incredible opportunity. What we decided to do basically was to expand the mission, because we had bought this very big building, and we were doing all this outreach, and we still had room for more clients and so we basically thought, you know, like, well, we can stay small or we can grow big and we can bring the lessons from HIV and expand to other illnesses, which was a very exciting process. And it was a lot about change management. We, there's a really book, great book called um, Who Stole My Cheese? Have you ever read that? Oh, sure. Yep. Oh, totally great book. And Peter Drucker has a book called The Way to Yes Is How?, so it was a lot about you know what are we doing here and it was it was I think a, a bringing together of like the AIDS movement and the breast cancer movement. It was really exciting, a really really great group that I'm lucky enough. I still eat too many of their brownies, <laughs> but it's it was a good lesson in terms of my career of staying humble and understanding how hard it is for the people who are on the other side of a grant proposal. Mm-hmm. The other is it was volunteer powered, so we I had a lot of moms and friends and sisters and brothers of people who had died of HIV who volunteered. And so the volunteer element of it kept the work very real every day. It was, it was a great job. I'm really lucky to have to have been there.
0: Well, and it sounds like you made a tremendous impact while you were there. You certainly influenced so many people in that role. Talk a little bit, you meant, you talked about change management. You also talked about you know, making a decision about really growing it and having a greater impact on other people. You, what, what was that like, and what were some of the challenges you may have come across as you said, hey, we're here, and we're going to go from, go to here?
1: Well, I think part of being a leader in any place is also meeting everybody where they are. So there were certain staff people that were there because – they had hiv or they had lost somebody to hiv there were staff i remember i had one staff person say to me during this whole change process i'm going to outlast you wow <laughs> I, i've been here longer and then i thought you probably are so i said you probably so yeah so so if you are what does that mean to this process and i think a lot of it uh, particularly in nonprofits is is really being willing to listen and to you know, people people work in nonprofits for a reason, and they often give up bigger pay salaries and bigger maybe career paths, and they have a certain level of moral commitment that is really differentiates the nonprofit space. So I think as a, a leader, it was me tapping into that, not being threatened by it, but sort of tapping into it and honoring it, you know, not to sound too... Uh, oovy groovy here, but really understanding that being morally committed to the work or being personally committed to the work is actually one of the reasons people work in nonprofits and one of the reasons that it makes them special. At the same time, we have a job to do. We have government contracts. We have donors. So I think for, for nonprofits is walking that line between the deep, passionate, personal commitments we all have to the issues we're serving, but also at the end of the day, understanding we're running a business. So I think striking that balance was really helpful. Also, it was very helpful to me to better understand how to really leverage good managers. I had never been in charge of that big a shop, although somebody has to make a decision at the end of the day, and it's not a democracy, really leveraging. I had really outstanding function leads there to say, you know, look, we have to cut the budget 10%. I could just cut 10% from everybody's budget, or you guys could come to me with recommendations. And more often than not, some people would cut 15 Some people would say, I can only cut five. And then the year, the next year, it would be different. So... It was, as I would say, a lot about listening. Uh, The other thing about nonprofits is we tend to run groups. Like I had drivers and a kitchen and I had 120 very different people in very different businesses, essentially. So that made for, I think, a more varied and difficult at times or rich at times manager discussions because they're all very different leaders. Whereas the business I'm in now, we sell cosmetics, everybody is steeped in cosmetics, steeped in skincare, steeped in fragrance. And so there's a common vernacular, even though you might be in finance or in product development, that often in nonprofits doesn't exist. The vernacular is your commitment to the issue.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it would seem to me that it it can be very challenging in a nonprofit, particularly when people are so connected to that mission, they're passionate about it. You want to do something, they may not agree with it. But at least in in the example that you gave of the person who might say I'm going to You know, you were very authentic about that. I mean, it seems like you tapped into where they were. And we're able to kind of listen and, and connect, and, and clearly, you move the organization to a, a place of having greater impact.
1: Yeah, the the man who said it to me was, you know, we had a finance department of three, and he was the the middle rower, and he was outstanding. So, I think that again is understanding that there was something that I was bringing to the moment, but there was a lot that he was also going to bring, and that his longevity did matter. That you know, if his personal experience and his perspective on what would last was better than mine at that moment actually.
0: It's just interesting. You could have taken a completely different approach. You might have said, "Oh yeah, you're going to outlast." Maybe I mean, you could have said, "I'm going to put this person in this place," but you didn't. And it sounds like part of what you also did was you saw the potential that he had really to serve the organization. And, and you were able to, to get to a place where he was able to make a, a, a contribution. So, I mean, to me, that, that's a big part of what leadership is, right? It's about helping other people be leaders and, and working with where they are. So that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Let me ask, now, you, you went from there to MAC Cosmetics. I mean, you know, two completely different things. Talk a little bit about what led to the switch for you and, and talk about that jump.
1: Well, I was lucky enough when I was at God's Love We Deliver, MAC and the MAC Fund was our largest funder. So I got to know John Dempsey, who was the, at that point, the president of MAC and is now uh, one of the group presidents here at Estee Lauder. And he basically, well, we had a big road race and, you know, the road race you have in Central Park, it was about seven o'clock in the morning. You know, it was one of these deals where you get up and you put the hat over your, take a shower, you show up. And he walked over and he said, how'd you like to come work for us?
0: This is completely out of the blue. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and so I walked over to my sister. I said, "I think I think I just I think he just offered me a job." Wow! (laughs) And my uh, my sister said, "Oh, oh, cool, free cosmetics." (laughs) So, and I think you know, at at that point, we were a single family income, and you know, I felt like I had been at God's love for five years. We had expanded the mission. We had done a big rebranding campaign with ad council, with voiceovers from then Mayor Giuliani. It was a very cool place at that point, but. I think one of the things I've kind of learned about myself is I'm kind of more of a builder than a maintainer. Mm -hmm. And I think I was kind of ready for my next challenge. The organization was in great shape. It had a great board of directors. And when I did decide to go to Mac, I actually gave them like three months notice because I wanted to make sure that the organization was in a good place. But actually, it was in such good shape. Honestly, they probably only needed two weeks notice. But So then I started working at the Mac AIDS Fund. At that point, Viva Glam campaign had really taken off. The brand had taken off. It had this incredible fundraising model of 100% of the proceeds of one product raised the money for the fund. And what was brilliant about it really was that the fundraising was joyous and sexy and playful. It wasn't sort of downbeat. And it was it was sexy, basically. And it gave people an opportunity to participate. And because it was 100% giving model, as the brand grew and grew, the fund grew and grew.
0: I'm sorry, 100% giving model, you said? What What exactly is that?
1: So basically, when a customer goes into a store and buys a Viva Glam lipstick for 1850. All 1850 goes to the Mac Viva Glam fund. And that hundred percent is then given out. So as a practitioner, what was cool about it was I was moving from having worked at a foundation to a big nonprofit that was funded by Mac to a brand where I was a member of the senior leadership team. So I sat in meetings talking about lipstick displayers and you know new markets that were opening. And then we talked about the Viva Glam campaign. And it was helpful in terms of basically better understanding the role that this played in the larger business and having empathy for the people who are working every day to sell the other things. Because at the bottom line is if there was no other sales, the fund wouldn't exist. So it was an opportunity, I think. And, you know, again, it was a great brand and I love John and it was a great opportunity but it was, it was, at the time, frankly, it was also kind of a scary leap because I thought, what am I doing? I'm like a total like, social justice nerd, and I'm jumping into this very sexy downtown cool brand. But the brand itself was very cool and just saying, we love you, whoever you are. And it was, it was, a, it was a good place to be yourself, frankly.
0: So, so Nancy, what was your role there? What would you say the objective was when you got there, and, and, and how did that change over the period of time that you were there?
1: Well, from a sort of social justice perspective, it was about building a portfolio of grants that were impactful in the HIV AIDS movement, and funding groups like God's Love We Deliver. But also, we looked at bigger partnerships, we did a cities partnership with the UN, we did a lot of private public partnerships, we work with a State Department, we work with the South African Justice Ministry. So what we tried to basically do was both do the most impactful corporate giving we could do, but also kind of use our brand microphone for good. And I think It was actually a harbinger of some of the great stuff that's going on now, which is that people really expect businesses to not only sell stuff, but they want you to do your business in a responsible way and that consumers have a choice. They can buy your lipstick or they can buy somebody else's lipstick. But if you really want to appeal to a bigger customer base, you should be thinking about how does purpose show up in your business model? How does it show up in your commercial model? How does it show up in your retail model? And how does it show up in your brand DNA?
0: It's interesting that you were at the front end of that, right? I mean, today we look at, say, the business CEO business roundtable and some of the statements that have come out about really what a company's responsibility is—not just to its shareholders, but to employees and to communities and so forth. It sounds like you were doing that really as back as 2006 and kind of uh, setting setting a path to yeah, that.
1: I was lucky enough to be part of what Mac was doing, so Mac was very early to this, and really um, Leonard Lauder and William Lauder when they acquired the Mac brand were very clear that MAC needed to to be MAC, and they were very clear that the 100% model stayed in place. So it was both the genius of the founders of the brand and then the genius of the Lauder family when they bought the brand. And, you know, MAC was an outsider brand. It still is an outsider brand. And so I think for a long time, HIV was considered an outside an outside illness, and it was it was deeply impacting the makeup artists we worked with, our friends, our families. And so it was something that, you know, as, as one makeup artist said to me, you know, it's one thing to sell lip. It's another thing to sell lipstick and save lives. And it was pre read, it was pre a lot of the, it was basically before cause marketing. Certainly, cause marketing has changed the game. I think the challenge in front of us now is how do you actually quantify the role of purpose in the business? You know, I think it is the golden age of purpose, but if we want to do more than message, we have to really think through from a business perspective how does purpose show up in a brand? How does purpose show up and work? And we see more and more, which is great, a lot more money in the field of every issue. And we have a – I think we're kind of in this big historical moment. Like, what are we going to make of this? So it's exciting to be at a company like Estee Lauder because we think a lot about that long and hard. We also think long and hard about how to build a sustainable business with a capital S and sustainable with a small S. So what's been cool over the last four years is I've also been able to work on the environmental front and kind of marry the social justice and the environmental justice. And we, you know, whether it be the disproportionate impact of climate change on poor women or the disproportionate impact of energy poverty or lack of energy and green energy on people who are in lower socioeconomic strata, that there's so much overlap between environmental justice and social justice. So it's an exciting time. Tell
0: us a little bit about what you've learned in the role from a leadership standpoint at Estee Water. You're at the forefront of sustainability, working a lot of things. What insights might you have from a leadership standpoint that would be uh, valuable for our audience?
1: Well, uh, one would be, as I said, really keep track of what gets you up in the morning and what you're excited about. So I've been lucky enough to get a series of jobs here at the SU e. Lauder companies that have been um, really very engaging. And I would say each time the next job has been out of my comfort zone. So I originally worked, I ran the MacAids Fund, and then we also started looking at Back to Mac, which was our environmental returns program. And then basically I've added more brands and more recently done the environmental work here as well. I would say stay humble, stay challenged, Be very aware of what you know and what you don't know. And I would say prepare and over-prepare. One of the many aspects of being a lawyer that's helped me is that we are pretty fastidious in our research and our preparation. And I have found that if I prepare well, I perform better. Even if I'm actually asked a question I don't know the answer to, at least I feel like if I could have known the answer, I have the answer. And if I don't, then I have a hunch. So uh, you know, I, I feel very fortunate for the positions I've been able to have. I also feel very fortunate that I've had bosses that I really respect and have given me a lot of opportunity. I've been lucky enough to have mentors that give me criticism when I need it and and criticism that I can listen to and grow from. I do think that this is an exciting time in the world, but it's a juncture in time, and so that the question I always have is, what are we gonna make of this moment? If this is the golden age of purpose, how do we ensure that it doesn't fizzle out in two years? How do we make sure that if we're building sustainable companies, we're building a sustainable world? And to me, that is the creative, interesting part of the work that we're doing now, which is how do we make packaging that has the least impact on the world, but is also perceived as luxury? How do we use the voice of the luxury beauty, Global House of Prestige Beauty that we are to be a leader in our sector and in other sectors? It's also a time, I think, when sectors have to get out of their lanes. So it's not just nonprofits and governments and for-profits. I think it really is, how do we get out of our sector, get out of our lane? I'd say creative partnerships, and I would say more democratic partnerships. I think if the lesson of Greta is that a teenager who's autistic can change the world. And I think that it's also, you know, whether it be Lady Gaga or Greta Thunberg, I've worked with all of these people who are different. And that just because somebody has a fancy title or a bigger salary than you doesn't mean that you don't have a good idea. I think we're in a moment where the world is is thirsty for and open to good, passionate, game-changing ideas. And you know, that's expressed often in venture capitalism, but I think it's often more now expressed in the social and environmental justice space. So, I think it's an exciting time. I feel really lucky to be in the sustainability field because it's It's just wildly growing, whether it be the investor work that I get to do or with employees or with sustainable packaging coalitions. So... There's a lot of great work to do. I would really encourage people to jump in. Uh, We need people not only with really good training and great degrees, we need people with implementation experience, particularly in consumer goods companies. So uh, I've been fortunate enough to assemble a, a good core team here at Estee Lauder Companies. And we've had some great strides over the last year. The bottom line is the whole company is not moving unless the whole company moves. And we have a lot of people here who are very, very passionate, who are making a big difference. So it's an exciting time. It's also, it's a humbling time to make sure I've done my homework and also, frankly, spend time with my family. <laughs> but I would just say that the the world awaits for, and there's a lot of great jobs and a lot of great roles that people can play. So I guess if people are inspired by the work that, that I've done, you know, thank you. I would say take a look around and use the inspiration to get some good work done in your current job, in your next job, in your family, in your community, kind of in an all hands on deck moment. So- Awesome. Come on in. The water is great.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, actually, before you go, uh, you said you're a big fan of Dale Carnegie. We'd love us to hear very quickly about that.
1: Well, there's a quality to Dale Carnegie. He's like Dear Abby. And I think, you know, how to win friends and influence people. I remember as a kid being like, wow, that. (laughs) Those those are good ideas. So I've always thought it's a very aspirational, obviously, person, but it's an aspirational brand. It was the original how-to, right? Mm -hmm. So, And it's all about self-improvement. And how do you get yourself from here to there? How do you get to the place you want to be? So I think that's great. Very aspirational and very um, transformative.
0: Well, thank you, Nancy. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. This episode was recorded by Justin D. Wright and Michael Conrader, edited and mixed by Justin D. Wright of Seaplane Armada. Please consider rating this episode and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.